All right, all right, all right. We're on episode 62 of the Wheel Surf Podcast, likely our final episode for uh, 2021 and what a year it's been. Um, we've had some awesome conversations, Angel. Um, we've we've talked some, some cool awesome people. Adventures. Our lives don't even, we don't even recognize our lives from like a year ago, man. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But overall, um, you know, wrapping up 2021, I know you've made some transitions on your own. You've gone uh, from uh, private private practice into, uh, into the big leagues. And that's after a, another transition, which we'll, we'll talk about with our, uh, honored guests here today, a transition from, uh, from military into, uh, into the private sector. So, I mean, how are you feeling as you wrap up 2021? I'm feeling really humble. I mean, uh, like I, I'm grateful, but, and, and not, but, and I'm humble and, and I feel like I need to, reach out to people that are near me and close to me and, and check in on them and see how they're doing and make sure that, that, you know, I, you never know when a phone call is going to make a difference, you know? So right now is one time I think I would encourage all our listeners besides to share and like, and subscribe to our, our, our podcast to, um, to really take a, take a hard look at, at your, you know, friend you have or shipmate or soldier, you know, brother, battle buddy you haven't talked to in, in uh, three or four months, maybe six months, maybe a year. The phone call you email you make could make all the difference in the world. So why yeah. to do that? Strong message. And you know, I'm thinking about that a lot today. Um, so we're we're recording this conversation. I know people are probably listening to this anytime, but um recording this conversation end of December twenty twenty one. And actually this morning I emceed our Riptoa ceremony, our relief in place transfer of authority ceremony here on Fort Bliss as we uh, handed off um responsibilities for our mission uh to another unit. As I get ready for my next assignment, and and certainly my battle buddies do the same, I said goodbye to a lot of people. And I hate goodbyes. I don't know about you, um, but I, I absolutely hate goodbyes. But the reality is that I know in the military, paths cross uh, a lot. And, um, you know, I'll just <laughs> good share this. Good and bad. <laughs> you know, good and bad. Very true. And I, I know, again, I want to make sure we bring in our guest in a moment because, oh, man, this guy has got a lot to share. Um, if you read super, the whole damn bio, I will cut you. I knew. I knew. I, I was I was prepared. Because <laughs> I know his joke. is really long. <laughs> it, it is long. It is long, but well-deserved. But I, I will say this, that, you know, I came into the Army as, you know, age 29, and I thought that, you know, Army is going to be all bureaucracy. And trust me, there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of paperwork and a lot of stuff like that. But I, I thought, you know, I'm going to keep my networking and the it's not what you know, it's who you know on the civilian side. That is so far from the truth, man. It is it is everything about it is everything about relationships and and I know our, our guests can uh, share a thing or two about that. And we were just uh, name dropping in our couple of minutes off air of uh, of mutual friends and and you know and I know he stayed in touch and he takes a a butt dial occasionally from a mutual friend of ours and and you know it that's that's just the the nature of relationships. So. Uh, I mean, man, a uh, good message, Angel, good message. And, you know, keep you, keep your, keep your battle buddies and your friends and your, your shipmates and so on close, uh, no matter where you're at in life and they've always got your back and hopefully you've always got theirs as well. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. But definitely subscribe, rate, review, and share. Um, so you said that already. And uh, again, it was a subtle sliding like that. I, it was good. It was smooth. <laughs> very, very smooth. But that makes it easier for people to find these conversations. But today, I will share this just before I even bring um, his uh, glorious face on the screen over here. Um, I uh, I thought that we had reached the uh, the pinnacle of our of our conversations here on We All Serve, where we talk to amazing leaders, people that have put the uniform on. But frankly, as we always say. Um, it doesn't matter whether you put the uniform on or not. It's it's a it's a way of life and and service. And I thought that we we've reached the pinnacle of service, having senior leaders. Um, whether you're talking about on the uh, on the officer side of of the military, we've had admirals, we've had general officers, um, but also the uh, the uh, retired sergeant major of the army. But then. I met John Wayne Truxel, and uh, here he is on the screen. So I'm, I'm because I'm scared of Angel, um, uh, because the uh, the Navy did win uh, the Army Navy game. Uh, so I am oh, scared of it. I've forgotten. Oh, that's yeah, funny. yeah. <laughs> I, I figured I'd bring it out, and I'd just bring that dig in on myself. And Steak retired John. Yeah. Yeah, I figured I might as well just bring that in because I know you'd probably rub it into me anyway. But um, I'd, I'd be in trouble if I read this entire um, eight-page bio over here. Um, but allow me to do just the highlights because, honestly, I can't have the retired 
uh, senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was the number three um, in uh, in what is a relatively new position. In this capacity, he served as the principal advisor to the chairman and the secretary of defense on all matters related to the troops of the United States Armed Forces to include the lethality, readiness, fitness, welfare, and deployability of the force, as well as the joint force development and education. This position made Troxel the most senior enlisted member of the United States Armed Forces. He enlisted way back, I wasn't born yet, in September 1982, <laughs> as an armored reconnaissance specialist and graduated from OSIT at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, served uh, in the United States Army for well over 37 years, numerous um, units, which again, far too numerous, numerous, numerous uh, deployments, including uh, uh, five combat tours of duty uh, and, uh, and has earned literally countless awards and decorations, both from uh, the United States Army, as well as uh, what I loved seeing is actually some of the uh, some of the foreign uh, badges and ribbons that uh, he's earned over the time. But finally, finally, during his time as uh, as SEAC, uh, Troxel campaigned for a distinctive rank insignia of uh, the SEAC position, much like the other uh, senior service enlisted advisors. And in 2019, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, approved the new rank and title and pinned that rank um, on Troxel at a ceremony in the Pentagon. And I've enjoyed looking in preparation for this conversation at some of those pictures of both uh, you pinning on that new rank as well as your retirement um, and uh, recognition from, uh, from the president um, uh, and senior leaders of this great nation. But um, with all of those great titles, I know, uh, John, you've been married to the former uh, Sandra Jimenez, uh, your wife of over 38 years. I think that tops your 37 years um, from El Paso, Texas. So I've got to get some recommendations on some of the best food and uh, and hiking here. Um, but I know you have three adult sons, four grandchildren, and uh, now you're involved in a lot of consulting, which we'll talk about over the course of this conversation. So retired SEAC John Wayne Truxel, welcome to We All Serve. Hey, gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with both of you. Oh, honor to have you. And as always, I defer to my first question over to uh, my battle buddy over here who uh, who did win that Army-Navy game. <laughs> not personally, not personally. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, thanks for coming on. And um, I wanted to start off uh, just with, and I dog out so long for reading the bio, but it just re it really always gets my mind going about things that I want to talk about and things I want to ask. And um, it mentioned, you know, he mentioned you do some consulting. What kind of consulting? And how was the transition from obviously consulting the, you know, the four star and <clears throat> consulting in business is a different, you know, there's a different vernacular. There's a different um, uh, methodology. How, how did you make that transition and what is that like? Or did you stay in your swim lane to say, Hey, I'm just really, really good at this. Yeah. Angel, thanks for the question. So uh, I have my own consulting company, which is PME hard consulting. PME hard means physically, mentally, and emotionally hard. It's a phrase I coined uh, during the surge in Iraq on how our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines needed to be to uh, fight and win against an insidious enemy that was using all kinds of tactics to not only cause harm on us, but innocent civilians and things like that. And so I just kept that phrase and I named my consulting company and I basically consult uh, on leadership, human performance, and building organizational cohesion. And uh, right now, I either serve as a consultant, strategic advisor, or brand ambassador for seven different companies. And I will tell you, when I got ready to retire, you know, and I started going into the corporate world, um, I thought I might have to change uh, how I approach because, you know, the military, as you know, you all were talking in the dialogue, there's bureaucracy associated with it and everything. But what I realized is that uh, um, big business and um, the military have so many similarities. So on any given day with some of these companies, I'm being asked to kind of do the same things I did as the SEAC, which is provide best advice um, to tell the CEO that the emperor doesn't have any clothes on when uh, they're not doing things that they need to do or whatever and get the pulse of the organization and ultimately deliver the why to the people throughout the organization on the vision, priorities, and focus of the leadership of the company. So um, I initially thought I was going to have to change how I approach things in business, but I'm, I'm kind of keeping the same leadership style now and, and focus uh, that I had for 
thir- almost 38 years in the military. Yeah. Wow. You're lucky. <laughs> I'm I, I'm in I'm in this end of it, and I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> I wish because and there's a difference. When I had my own consulting co- company, I it was it was a lot like what you're saying, talking about leadership, talking about retention, talking about how to bring yeah. veterans in, um, how to create a, a a good culture, a good climate. What does it look like? Um, uh, secession planning, how to develop them, you know, young yeah. early things that we learn and things that we that gel with us, and you go to a different um aspect of consulting it's it's totally different so what you're saying makes perfect sense to me now i will tell you um it hasn't all been beer and skittles out here um you know one company uh, it was a uh, hollywood film company that i worked for for about six months right after i retired um the hierarchy of that film company uh what i was trying to do was get them to make their films on the military look authentic and that that caused a lot of attention to detail and uh they weren't a lot of fans of someone telling them that they weren't doing things right and so our relationship didn't last very long um because uh the boss basically you know uh was going to do what they wanted to anyways and and i just thought well why do you got me if i'm telling you uh, 38 years tells me that you're you're going to make this look inauthentic and the troops are going to see that it looks like garbage and, uh, and you're not going to get some good ratings out of this documentary movie you're trying to make. So, um, we did part ways after about six months, but, uh, it was all for the best. Yeah. I think it's about what you're saying. It's really about value alignment, uh, with, with the client and consultants. And one of my mentors here at, at, uh, my firm said, Angel, you know what? People have different values than you. People have different emphasis than you. Some people just aren't fans of the military and that's okay. They just don't know any better, and, and that's fine, and that's okay. Yeah. You fought for them to have the right to be like that. So I think the key is, uh, and what my takeaway, and it's probably your takeaway too, was early on, do the litmus test. Find out where their heads are. And if they're yeah. authentic and sincere, you're good to go. If you're not, well, now you know. You saved yourself, you know, six. even though the money might be there, you saved yourself about six months of, of, of heartache. Yeah, absolutely. You're exactly right. So – yeah. So, I mean, listening to this and, and talking about how, how that, you know, how, how you've managed to, to build your identity. And I, I've just been, been reading part of that identity has certainly not been completely stepping away from the hats that you've worn. I right. noticed the other day you spoke um, virtually to, uh, to a course at Fort Benning, Georgia. I know that recently you visited at uh, Schofield Barracks in, in Hawaii. So certainly you're, you've kept that relationship. You don't spend 37 years uh, reaching the, the highest enlisted um, role um, and, and just sort of run away from it. But as Angel and I always do. He always talks about the current um, when we start this conversation. I'm going to bring you all the way back um, to what I believe now would be about 39, 40 years ago um, when uh, when you went to uh, to OSIT, uh, Fort Knox. Um, and what was it that brought you into the military? What crazy idea brought you into a recruiter's office uh, that many years ago? And I mean, tell us a little bit about your family and were they supportive at the time? Yeah, so I, I uh, grew up in Davenport, Iowa, uh, Quad Cities, USA, and uh, um, I didn't have a lot of purpose, motivation, and direction as I was growing up. I mean, I had sports in my life, you know, with wrestling and stuff like that and football, um, and I grew up in a loving household, even though at times we were a broken home, you know. Uh, for the most part, my stepfather raised me. Uh, I had three siblings in the house with me, but uh I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I didn't have a lot of direction. And my brother, that's a year older than me, he joined the military, and then several other of the older kids his age and, uh, and others joined the military. And I saw when they came back, whether it was from Army boot camp, Navy boot camp, or Marine Corps boot camp, they were different when they came back. You know, they were kind of sinewy, muscular. They walked with their head up and their shoulders back. They were boisterous and there was a level of confidence about them. And they and had there was money. An air about that. And then, and they had money too, you know, beyond the $5 a week allowance we would get, you know? So, uh, um, and I said, I want some of that. So, uh, I, I joined the military and, uh, you know, once I joined and, and left, uh, 
you know, I went, that's what got me into the recruiter's office and what got me to join. And especially as a reconnaissance specialist in the army was the recruiter I had. And, uh, and I joined and what I realized in a hurry is that this, I just kind of fit in with the military, like one of those round pegs in a round hole. I just fit. And, and, uh, shortly after I got to my first duty station at Fort Bliss, I met, uh, this little short, uh, beautiful Hispanic girl named Sandra Jimenez. And, uh, we got, uh, we started dating on the 1st of February, 83, and we got married on the 9th of September, 83. We had our first child in March of 84, and we've been together for over 38 years. And so what got Good me into man. the military, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we weren't, we weren't married when, uh, <laughs> when he was conceived. All right. But, uh, Hey, I was a young Joe, you Dude. know, how, you know, young <laughs> Joe, my story too, whatever I get it. It's yeah. just funny. It, it's just something you gotta, you know, you hang out with, that's what the podcast is. We're a bunch of guys and we're hanging out, giving shit like we give the guys. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 So, uh, um, but the key thing about staying in the military is now I had responsibility. I had a wife, I had a son on the way and, that's what kind of kept me in. And, uh, my first reenlistment took me to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I joined the 82nd airborne division and I had found my calling. And, uh, that's kind of where my career took off there. It's where I got my baptism by fire and combat and operation just cause yesterday was the 32nd anniversary of jumping in there. Um, and, uh, then desert storm after that. And, and it, my career just kind of took off. So it all started with, uh, trying to emulate uh, the older kids and my brother in my neighborhood. And then after that, it was about taking care of my family. And ultimately it was about striving uh, for excellence and trying to reach, you know, that untapped potential that kept me going throughout my career. Incredible. And I, I asked this of all of our, of all of our listeners, or of all of our guests rather. And, um, and it, it's particularly meaningful coming, coming from you. Uh, after reaching all of the, all of the, every, every enlisted rank in the army and then beyond, um, which we'll talk about that joint side of things. Um, but can you point to sort of best friend or greatest mentor, um, from across your, your 37 plus years? Well, there, there's so many, but I would say the ultimate and probably the one that, uh, had the most impact on me was retired command Sergeant major Roger Blackwood. Um, Roger, when I first got to the 82nd Airborne Division, was in a critical role in our light armor battalion. He was a master gunner. So he kind of taught me the skills of uh, gunnery and how to fire the weapon system on our armored rec rec reconnaissance vehicles and everything. And then uh, a couple of years later, he was my first sergeant uh, when I was a platoon sergeant in his company there. And we were very close. And then the last time we served together, I was a striker brigade, Sergeant Major, Surge Brigade Number 4 in Iraq, and he was my division Sergeant Major uh, out of the 1st Armored Division. And we've stayed in touch since, but he by far had the most impact. But then, you know, when I, when I first joined, and, uh, you know, I only stayed at Fort Bliss a year, and I was up PCS to Germany, and I got there, and my first sergeant there was a guy named Charles B. DeRosa who was a Korean war vet and a Vietnam vet. And he was the guy that kind of focused me on, you got to be tough and you got to be focused. And he was actually, you know, the first guy to tell me that he saw uh, potential in me and that I could one day be a first sergeant like him or beyond. And, and he was a guy that I was just driven to. And then ultimately, you know, when you need mentorship at every level, um, the pinnacle of my career was for two years as the SEAC. Well, actually, for 45 months, my immediate boss was Marine General Joe Dunford, just the consummate statesman and probably the best officer I've ever served with. Um, and then I would have to throw Army General Mike Scaparotti in there, who retired as the uh, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. But I served as his command sergeant major in three different assignments to include a year in combat in Afghanistan. And then for two years while I was working for Dunford, I also advised Secretary Jim Mattis. So working for Dunford and Mattis at the same time was just uh, nirvana for me. And at that level, the strategic level where you get to understand the direction that the SecDef and the chairman are taking our military, and you're able to deliver that 
to the troops in the form of why we need you to do something. I think though I can't I can't talk about mentors without having them in there as well. Amazing. You know, I, one of the things that I got to do when I was um, enlisted was I got to go to the Enlisted Academy. I had uh, my whole career yeah. planned out to be a command mass chief, went to uh, Naval War College, and um, that's kind of where I figured Island, out. Right? right, yeah, in January, yeah. so I can freeze my tail off. It was nice. <laughs> and, then, and then I got commissioned two years later. No one they sent me back there? In January. It's nice. <laughs> it's great. Thanks. Welcome back, guys. Um, but the one thing I learned was – the senior enlisted advisors, and we had a couple, you know, command master. We had master of hurt of hurt consulting, who has mm -hmm. all the navy contracts and all that education net and all that stuff. And I was like, okay, got it. I know, I know, we, I know your bread is butter, buddy. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I understood that what they did was they developed their 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 force and their fleet master chiefs, which I I think is pretty much the same kind of structure. Sure. But what I and I I think that they advised the CNO and their their you know command their uh branch commanders as well on issues of you know uniform items does this make sense prt and had buying on those quality of life uh ombudsman kind of things yeah um and then of course they went around and did the grip and grin and you know support of the troops uh but what what percentage of that was actually interacting with and making policy and assisting in policy development with, you know, the likes of Dunford and Mattis. Cause that, that's fascinating to me. And I, it would make me yeah. jealous as hell. <laughs> yeah. So like that's, um, it's a pretty, pretty cool job. I mean, you just ego yeah. on it. Like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, it was, it was exciting to get up and go to work every day, yeah. but you know, so to understand the role of the chairman and the secretary of defense, um, the chairman is not in any chain of command. The chairman is a principal military advisor to the SECDEF and the president, more importantly, to the president of the United States. He is the president's military advisor. The secretary of defense obviously is um, in the chain of command and is an advisor to the president as well, but on all defense related matters. And so um, in terms of Title 10 kind of policy and stuff, those are the, what the services kind of do and the SECDEF along with the service secretaries, that's kind of their direction. But in terms of strategy, whether it was the national military strategy or the national defense strategy or emerging kind of things that would in, include the entire force like uh, transgender integration or anything like that. I certainly had a role in that uh, in terms of advising, <clears throat> but I will tell you the, the best part out of it all, and what I, I saw as my biggest responsibility is that when I got into a conference room with Mattis and Dunford and the entire joint staff, uh, all these three stars, um, as well as the, the key players from the Office of the Secretary of Defense, I knew in that meeting, being the only enlisted guy, that I represented every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, uh, guardian, and in some cases, a coast guardsman in the entire active guard and reserve force. So I had to make sure that I was, uh, I came prepared for the conversations we were going to have. And, and I had to make sure that I gave uh, feedback because the chairman and the SECDEF were going to call on me. That was relevant to the conversation we were having. What I mean by that is um, when you get to that level at the strategic level, um, you're not going to have a conversation about, you know, the tactical level stuff that gets after good order and discipline, kind of the Oms Budmans kind of stuff you talked about, sure. Angel. Um, don't get me wrong, that stuff's important and you still have a role in that as the SEAC, but now you're at the strategic level and you have to give feedback or recommendations that will be relevant to those kinds of strategic conversations. So what this forced me to do was to study all the time, to continue to grow all the time and learn what we were doing across the globe what were the services doing in terms of building uh, capability that can be employed by the combatant commanders? And then what were the combatant commanders campaign plans to get after their areas of responsibility? So every night I was taken home, not only a sipper bag, but reading materials that would continue to keep me abreast of everything that was going on. And then as, as we all know, as a, a senior enlisted guy, 
uh, one of your key jobs is to stay out in front of your bosses. Um, they shouldn't have to be going behind themselves to try and pull you in. You ought to be trying to get out in front of them so that you're ahead of the conversations or the events that are going on and stuff like that. So all the stuff you talked about still happens at that level. But for me, it was more what what could I provide for the chairman and SECDEF that they may not get uh, ordinarily. So for instance, I was their eyes and ears. So <clears throat> over the course of the four years that I was in that job, I visited over 70 countries and repeat offenders of Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, all these places that we had troops in bad areas um, and in combat areas that I could give real-time information to both of them. Not that we were trying to circumvent any chain of command or command at all, but um, you know, if the secretary of defense wanted to know how we were doing in Mogadishu, Somalia on the ground, I could get in there quite easily a lot more than he could, or even the chairman, because there's going to be a dog and pony show coming with them. As you all know, we call it going through the deck me, plates. <clears throat> absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And that's what Mattis used to say. I need you to get to the deck plate. And yep. so whether it was on, the deck plate of a ship or whether it was on the ground in Somalia, <clears throat> whether it was at Prince Sultan air base in Saudi Arabia, or if it was in Johnson Atoll in the Pacific, you know, I made it a point to get to where the troops were to get the pulse of the force for the chairman and the sec def and to deliver the why to the troops, why they're there, why they're doing what they're doing and how long we need them to do it. You really did a great, uh, you really painted a great picture because I was struggling initially and I'm like, okay, is, is, as a senior enlisted representing all the soldier and all the enlisted in the military, is he strategic? <clears throat> and you really connected it. Say, yes, I have access <clears throat> to this. And yes, I have, I have the, the street cred, if you will, to go yeah. down and get the, get the straight skinny without the roses and the dog and pony show. And you know what? And yeah, I'm going to advise based on, hey, by the way, here's how it affects sailors and soldiers. Here's what they're going to feel about that. Here's how it's going to impact them in a way that they that senior leaders really might not have that, that insight. Yeah. So, Angel, you'll appreciate this. Uh, so one of the first trips I had to make was on to the USS George Washington. And so when I got when I came on deck, you know, and, uh, you know, they, I saluted and they, you know, went through the process of let me on board. The cat commanding officer met me. He said, Hey, I just want to let you know, you got all hands call here in about 30 minutes with this entire crew here. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it's about 5,000 sailors and about a thousand Marines. So here I am <clears throat> a guy that spent 35 years at that time in the army wearing an army uniform and I'm getting ready to talk to a bunch of 5,000 sailors who, and a thousand Marines. And then, Oh, by the way, up on the stage down there in the hangar bay, they got the big U S United States Navy flag back there in the American flag. So I had to deliver a message that was relevant to those sailors and those Marines. And it could not be an army acronyms. It could not be an army vernacular. It had to be something that they could walk away and say, and it okay, would this resonate. guy might be, and it would resonate. Yes, sir. So, you know, even though I'm in an army uniform, I had to be able to speak their language. So that goes that. And so in that job, I had to do a lot of listening. So when I would go into an engine room of a destroyer or something, I would sit around and soak it in. I'd go to the chief's mess and listen to what was going on. I would dine with uh, the young sailors or I would, you know, go to the, you know, the commander's quarters and listen to the strategy and the vision that that commanding officer would have and everything. And so when we talk about how to be best informed, you know, I mean, doing a lot of listening and learning goes a long way. And even if you're the senior enlisted guy in the Department of Defense, when you show up somewhere, regardless of where it's at, people expect you to deliver a message. And as you said, would resonate with them, even though you're in a different uniform with a different culture. So, um, Oh, through sets and repetitions and constant studying, and then my relationships with the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, and the other guys, I kind of built this. So when I first got there, it was uh, Mike Stevens. Stevens. Then it became Steve Giordano, and ultimately it was Russ Smith. Yep. So, <clears throat> and that goes the other thing. So when you're trying to get educated and you're trying to learn and you're trying to understand 
um, you have to build a network too. And I know, uh, Shalom, we were going to talk about this, but I'll, I'll jump into it right now. At that Please. level, the SEAC has a Defense Senior Enlisted Leader Council, which a lot of people don't know about, but it's all of the service senior enlisted, you know, so the MCPONS, our major of the Army, and all the other guys, and it's all the combatant command senior enlisted. And th these are the top 20 enlisted in the entire Department of Defense. And so I would build a network with them, and then based on what are the key issues service-related or operationally, um, we would look to solve those kinds of problems. Also, we brought in our foreign partners from all over the globe. We built this global network of senior enlisted that could share best practices, that could assist one another. And ultimately, um, you know, just about two years ago when I stepped out as the SEAC, for my last D-Cell conference, we had over 40 international partners that showed up, either the senior enlisted from that nation or one of their service senior enlisted. So I think in that role, um, you've got to be a learning leader. You've got to be able to understand strategically what's going on and how to translate that at the tactical level so the troops understand uh, why we're doing what we're doing. And then you have to continue to practice that art of engagement and influence by, you know, constantly dialoguing with congressional members, with the State Department, with administration members, and then obviously with the troops. And uh, so for me, it was a four-year university that I was going to called the University of the SEAC and uh, trying to just make myself better. Because the position was so new, I also wanted to make sure that we were given the job irreversible momentum and the troops wouldn't have to ask, why do we need a guy at the joint level when we got our service senior enlisted and everything? And, and that's what I tried to do. And, uh, and it, it worked out well for four years. And now the current SEAC, uh, he's an Air Force guy, uh, Ramon CZ Colon Lopez. He's carrying the baton further and, and he's doing great things uh, in, in the role as well. I love hearing about the uh, the joint side of things. It, it's uh, it's it's fascinating, and and I love the story that you just shared. And I was I was going to go there, so you took the words right out of my mouth in terms of you know wearing that that army uniform, um, but then being able to be the the brand ambassador, if you will, for uh, for for everybody. Um, Absolutely. I, I I have to ask because this is a a leadership uh, podcast, and again, I know I'm watching some of the comments come in, which is uh, which is great. I know we've got um, folks that are in uniform uh, tuning in. Um, we're going to talk to about the, our other audience, which is folks perhaps that uh, that might be interested in coming in in uniform in a moment. But I just want to talk about the general leadership piece for a moment. And I, I'm really hesitating in a asking this question, but I feel comfortable. So what the hell? Why not? So, um, John, you, you reached, again, senior enlisted position in DOD. A position like that doesn't just come to you. A position like that, and you mentioned your motivation, those people that have propelled you along your journey. Um, for anybody that might be tuning in, how much do you believe is appropriate, whether it's in military or in business, to self-advocate, to push yourself along to the next position, and to essentially self-promote? Because I'll be honest, I look at the things that you're doing, and I think it's awesome that you you clearly understand marketing. You clearly understand how to get a message out there. So uh, again, a bit of a, a touchy subject, but I want to understand the behind the scenes of what it takes yeah. to get to that point. So I think first and foremost, it's it's not to worry about what the next job is or the higher trying to get promoted or anything. It's how do you make yourself the best at what you're doing right now? And how do you have the, mo the biggest impact? What gave me the most joy throughout my career as a leader was seeing the people that I was responsible for excel and seeing those around me that were reaching their untapped potential and were, you know, going on and doing great things. That gave me more joy than John Wayne Troxell getting a promotion or anything. Don't get me wrong. All of us want upward mobility. All of us want to continue to get increased responsibility. But for me, it was how do I impact the people around me? And so, um, I learned at a, a, a early age, you know, 
that if you want to have an impact as a leader, you got to be more about the intangibles than anything tangible. You know, I talk all the time. Yeah, I was an airborne ranger. I was a master parachutist. I had a combat jump and all this stuff. But those kind of tangibles could not define me as a leader. It had to be, was I genuine in my approach? Was I transparent in my demeanor? Did I have a good balance between discipline and compassion? And was I doing things to be inspirational and provide that purpose, motivation, and direction and get people excited to come to work every day and want to do their job and want to be better? And do I embrace the diversity of our organization and, and leverage everyone and treat them with dignity and respect and build this cohesive team? And, uh, and I just kind of stayed focused on that. And I, I think the more we have people that focus on that kind of stuff, they're going to be successful leaders. And ultimately, those promotions or positions of increased responsibility will come in. But I don't think, uh, you know, obviously, you know, um, selfless service is something that we all do and we have to do. But I, I think at no time... Um, should it be, hey, I'm focusing on this next promotion. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, um, if we aren't doing things to make ourselves look good or, or to make ourselves look effective or be effective, that certainly we could get lost in the wash and pretty soon get passed over and, and stuff like that. So there's got to be a little bit of that in there. Um, and, and so, but, and I say this all the time, it's not a sin to uh, desire to be, for positions of higher responsibility or for glory or anything, as long as you're taking the team with you and, uh, and getting them to uh, their goals and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I tried to do. And especially as the SEAC, I wanted the, the, the forces to know who I was and what I did. And I wanted them to know that I was their voice with the chairman, the SECDEF and at the white house. <clears throat> John, I'm going to ask you, I just have one, that was awesome. I just have one last and thing. And what you were saying about the leadership piece, I think about my, as I go day, day for day, and someone asks you, hey, Angel, what are you good at? And some, last week, someone in my firm asked, what are you good at? And I'm like, well, I'm good at leading, I'm developing people, da, 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 da. No, 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 but what are you good at? And, and they go, they go, Mike, the tactical, microscopic. And I'm like, but, but I'm here. I'm yeah. like, no, no, we need you to be here. I'm like, no, 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 I'm here. Like no 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 we need you to be here so it's kind of hard like your you know your example about jumping out of planes I'm like I'm not thinking about jumping out of planes or doing the tactical stuff I'm thinking about the real gratification and same for you the real gratification comes from the unit level stuff and the the uh, pushing people and watching you know attrition rates go down and watching advancement rates go through the roof and all those kind of things that are tangibles in companies now one thing I was wondering is my chief way back in the day on the GW, actually on the George Washington in uh, night, we're there responding to nine 11. I told Shalom about that. Mm -hmm. um, and he told me, and I, I was doing really well in my career. And he said, he's Taurus. I just want to let you know when you're out there running in front and you're doing all the right things, you're in front and that makes you a target and that makes people hate you and they will have naturally have animosity towards you all the way through and i can imagine that through the senior enlisted ranks that i mean crabs in a barrel sometimes it just is and i wonder and, and when you get out it's a lot of the same in the in the, the veteran community and uh the corporate community what do you do what are some things you do to to mitigate that because we're, we're people and we're sensitive and if you tell me oh it doesn't bother me I, i'm gonna go yeah right <laughs> it, it bothers all of us i mean i think we're all kind of but how we fix it and how we address it i like to know some of the tools and some things you do to kind of validate yourself and say you know what i'm trekking along just fine yeah you know one of the things that uh, and angel that's great question man because uh uh in the military and in business a lot of people don't like to talk about this stuff and I, I label it professional jealousy that exists in any walk of life, what we do. Um, but uh, General Dunford, when he first hired me, he, he said a couple things to me. He said, one, if you're waiting around for me to tell you what to do, you're going to be waiting for four years because I expect you to know what to do. And so I knew that all I had to do was arm myself with his vision and priorities and then get out and get after business. But two, 
he said, don't expect me to come by and tell you you're doing a great job. He says, I'll know you're doing a great job by what the troops are telling me. And so, uh, you know, periodically he would give me that feedback that the troops love, you know, when I'm coming and talking and everything. But obviously this kind of stuff exists, that uh, this professional jealousy and everything, and there's always going to be people that are, that are going to criticize you. But I, I put it like this, especially now in business. You know, Stephen Covey, you know, a guy that did a great job in, in producing leaders and cohesive organizations. He's a one-minute manager three, guy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. He talked about uh, the three circles of uh, relationships, you know, or the three circles of uh, getting better. And then the inner circle was the circle of control. Everything that was in your direct control, whether it was people that worked for you, uh, your family, your job, whatever it is, people that you had to focus on that. And then the next circle out is your circle of influence. And it's people that you have to build relationships with um, and that, uh, you know, you have to continue to kind of work with them to move forward or other organizations to move forward. And the outer circle is circle of concern. It might be those people that kind of piss you off or, or those that uh, will say something that, you know, kind of have an impact on you. And he said, though the people in the circle of concern, you need to punt and, and the situations in the circle of concern, you need to punt because they have no impact on what you control or what you influence. And so what I've tried to do is take an extinction response to the naysayers to me. And I just do, I, I just don't answer them. I don't say anything to them. Obviously when people are talking smack about you, you know, in your mind, the, your initial thought is we can all be some fighting MFers here tonight, you know, and, and everything, you know, but, uh, you're pretty uh, bad from the behind that keyboard, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you well, tough, and I tough stroke, yeah. key stroking son of a gun. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I did a video about that, you know, uh, you know, a, a keyboard tough guy shithead, you know, excuse my language, but, but the point is, um, what I've learned and I, and I really learned this, the further I went up in rank, is let the people um, say what they're going to say and try to let it roll off your back. Obviously, it has an impact and everything. So I feel like I've gotten better, and especially now in my life, because I spend a lot of time with our active duty, for our Guard and Reserve right now. Every week, it seems like I'm, I'm visiting some soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, Space Guardians, or whoever. And so I'm having a huge impact. And now there's people that look at this like, well, this guy's retired. What's he going out and talking to the troops? I said, look, <laughs> they're asking me to come out. I'm going to give You have back something to give. You have yeah. something valuable to give. If they want a better service, what you bring is going to make the service better. Those lessons and everything that's encapsulated in you, yeah. that, you don't want that shit to be lost because that's some valuable stuff learned the hard way. Yeah. And so I will tell you, if I learned anything and to answer your question, when I was the SEAC, I had a guy that uh, instantly jealous of what I was doing. He was one of my subordinates. Uh, he was a fellow E9. He had over 30 years in the military and he was a 60 percenter, if you know what I mean by that. He was a minimum standard kind of operator and he expected to be re rewarded for minimum standard. Mm -hmm. And so I had to get in his butt a couple of times behind closed doors. And what I didn't realize, because I was so busy as the SEAC, and I, I couldn't focus on my inner office because I had 3 million active guard and reserve troops to worry about. Um, and I kind of took my eye off the ball with this guy. And little did I realize that this guy was trying to build a case uh, to get me fired. And so anytime I used a cuss word, anytime I had a slight inflection in my voice talking to him or anything like that, he was writing down. And all of a sudden I had an IG complaint filed against me. Mm -hmm. And at that level, you know, um, I got suspended and I was suspended for six months as the SEAC pending an investigation. And uh, when it all was said and done, I was reinstated by General Dunford. Uh, but that was the six, six months of the hardest part of my life because people kept telling me, just retire, let it go. But I was like, I'm not going to go out like this. I knew that I had not done anything wrong as a leader. And what I was being accused of was a bunch of BS. And in the end, the IG found a couple of things that I had done wrong 
General Dunford gave me a counseling statement and I was reinstated. And I will tell you, gentlemen, when I went back into that job, I was not going to change my leadership style at all. I had been a sergeant major for 20 years. And now in my 20th year, you're telling me that uh, I'm screwed up. So I went back. But what I what I did learn and my lesson from it was I took my eye off of my circle of control in my internal environment. And I wasn't paying enough attention and I wasn't cognizant enough of what was going around me in my immediate office. Uh, and so that guy, his, uh, his trick failed and he was sent on his way. I was put back in the job and the team and I got back after business. But, uh, my point in all of that is, uh, and my message to leaders out there, be cognizant of your environment at all times. Don't try to change your leadership style to be popular. Certainly don't try to change it uh, to be a hard ask. Because if you do that, you're, uh, you're going down the road of being toxic. Be the leader that has made you successful through your years of either in service or business. But just be cognizant of the people around you and in your environment at all times. John, thank you for your transparency and your honesty, man. I just, I, I'm so, that's so refreshing. And and the one thing that I take away from this is, is and that I learned about a year and a half, two years ago, is creating a professional board, personal board of directors, right? People yeah. that are advising you and counseling you and watching your back when you're, you know, and, and just fostering those relationships, those, those, those important relationships and just surround yourself with those people. So you don't always have to be looking left and right. And you can just keep your eye on the prize. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I appreciate the candor as well. And um, and uh, some really great advice that's relevant um, for those in service, uh, frankly, in business and really in, in, in any way. Um, so just as we come to, to close in our conversation, um, I want to give the uh, the final word over to you. I know you're involved in some some great things. And um, but if you can certainly share where people can learn and what you want people to learn more uh, about from you. But if we could start that answer by, uh, by sharing just what's your, what's your message to the young uh, John Wayne Truxels that might be out there and might be considering, um, you know, uh, serving, uh, I mean, go army for sure. I mean, no question about that, but, <laughs> but uh, tell, tell, tell us your message to, uh, to anybody that might be tuning in. So I will tell you the United States military took a guy like me who graduated about 650 out of 725. You know, I was a good student during wrestling season and stuff like that. But outside of that, I was more focused on girls and drinking beer. And I didn't apply myself. I didn't have a lot of options when I graduated from high school. I took a chance on joining the military based off of seeing what it did to the people, the, the, the older kids in my neighborhood and my older brother. And, uh, um, when I came in, I barely a graduate of high school, no purpose, motivation and direction. And in over the course of 37 years, 10 months and 29 days, um, I was able to serve my country in combat five times. I earned a master's degree in, in, in a concentration in strategic leadership. And I rose to the ultimate senior enlisted position uh, in the DOD. And it was all based on these tenets. Um, I think you have to dream big, you know. What do you want to do with your life? Dream big. Okay. But you have to set lofty and attainable goals. Uh, you know, you can't, if you're a JV football player in high school, you can't say, I want to be an NFL player. All right. Um, because if you can't even make varsity on your high school, chances are you're not going to get a division one scholarship and you're not going to play in the NFL. So dream big, but set lofty and attainable goals. Visualize yourself attaining those goals. And then ultimately, you got to actualize it. And there's going to be a lot of naysayers. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road and everything. But you got to take it uh, and you got to keep trucking on to get to where you want to be. And so that's kind of what I focused on throughout my career and what I do now. Um, you know, I, I opened my own consulting company and now my consulting company pays the bills. But I also uh, own the eTool Nation uh, Foundation now. And if you know anything about the eTool Nation, I don't know. I want to know about Troxel. it. So, okay, a couple of years ago, when I was the SEAC, um, you know, I, I'd seen how this was my first year in the job. I had seen how um, in some parts of Washington, D.C., 
we weren't looking at the hard sacrifices that our men and women in the military were making in such places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Colombia, uh, and these other places, or in the South China Sea, like our sailors were doing, performing freedom of navigation operations and things like that. And all of a sudden, this kind of stuff was in the back burner of, you know, kind of what we were focusing. It was almost a, in some cases, depending on who you're talking to, that we weren't even a nation at war anymore. And so I wanted to make sure we kept the men and women in harm's way at the forefront. And so I kind of called out ISIS uh, one time. You know, Secretary Mattis came in and said, hey, we're not going to just talking about defeating the enemies of our country. We're going to annihilate them. And so when he and I would do town halls together, I knew I had to send a message that would resonate with the troops. And so when he would talk national uh, defense strategy and talk about competition and responding to crisis and all that, I focused on fighting and winning. And then my message, one day I just said uh, to a bunch of Marines we were talking to in Camp Lejeune, and I said, uh, what the what the SECDEF means is that people like ISIS have two options. They can surrender or die. If they surrender, we are a, a peace-loving nation and uh, we'll treat them humanely. We'll deliver them to their detainee holding facility, get, sell, give them food, shelter, and ultimately due process. But let there be no doubt, if they don't surrender, then we're going to kill them with extreme prejudice, whether that means dropping bombs on them, shooting them in the face, or if need be, beating them to death with our entrenching tools, our military shovels. And I said that just to inspire the troops, because I think as a military leader, uh, your job is to inspire the troops and intimidate the enemy. You knew your you know? audience, that's for sure. Talking to a bunch of Marines, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> well, you know, I will tell you, though, this thing went viral, and all of a sudden, oh, yes, it, uh, it you know, you know, um, a Washington Post reporter heard me say this, and he started uh, telling me that I was telling troops to go out and commit war crimes and things, and he was going to post an article in the Washington Post. And my public affairs guy, guy by the name of Rob Kotor, retired master sergeant now, he said, let's beat him to the punch. So we took my quote, put a picture of me holding an entrenching tool with that quote on social media, and it went viral. And it got picked up by all news networks. Obviously, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and those criticized me. Fox News and One News Network really you know, praised me. Mem some members of Congress praised me. Some criticized me. Uh, the troops loved it. Um, and it even the foreign media like France, Germany, Belgium, countries like that picked it up. And uh, and so the e-tool all of a sudden uh, and this what's ironic, Angel, based on your statement about Marines, the first person that brought me a military shovel to sign an entrenching tool was a sailor. And uh, he happened to be the chairman's uh, uh, mass communicator. And so. I was like, where in the heck did you get this? Because I know you don't get issued this. He said, oh, I got my ways. And so since then, I've signed over 2,000. As a matter of fact, I'm over 2,050 entrenching tools. I have an eTool Nation Facebook page that has 2,200 members in it. And what eTool Nation now is like-minded people that are about uh, living the warrior ethos, that love their country, love their freedom, their way of life and everything. But for me now... PME hard pays the bills so I could fund the eTool Nation. And now eTool Nation, uh, I have an apparel line of shirts and hoodies and hats and all this stuff. And every cent that we get back from it, I donate to some kind of charity. As a matter of fact, Shalom, can we get the website on the, on the screen on the banner, please? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Now we'll um, get it up there. And so, for instance, I was in Iowa and there's a, an organization, Downrange Excursions, that takes veterans and military members, or excuse me, law enforcement members that suffer from PTSD on exotic hunting trips to Alaska and fishing trips. Uh, the Lighthouse for the Blind is another one and so many others that uh, I want to give back to. So uh, my website is www.pmehard.com. Uh, that's my official page for my consulting company, but it also has the page for the eTool Nation apparel and everything. And, uh, and then you can find me on all forms of social media. Uh, and uh, the eTool Nation page 
uh, is on Facebook. Please come and join us. And uh, we don't allow uh, a lot of political stuff that goes on there, but I try to keep people informed of what's going on in our world. I encourage uh, discussions uh, on either side uh, of what may be going on in the world. But in the end, it's about being better informed, uh, better prepared, and uh, also just you know, being excited about who you are and what you are. And uh, so now I'm so excited. And I, I, another announcement, I am now PME Hard and E-Tool Nation is sponsoring two veteran soldier athletes. Uh, one is a veteran and a military spouse. So she is a world record holder, power lifter and a uh, uh, strong woman. And she's competing in the world championships, uh, excuse me, the national championships in July in New Hampshire. And we just signed another, an NCO on active duty who's a, a professional MMA fighter. He has a big fight coming up on 15 January. So we sponsor both of those two uh, athletes uh, and assist them with their training, uh, their, their training uh, uh, fees and all this kind of, yeah, and all this stuff. So my whole goal with eTool Nation is to give back. And, uh, and so that's what my wife and I, we run the company now and, uh, you know, giving away money so that people can do it. But as you know, especially you, Angel, you just don't wake up one morning and say you're going to start writing checks. You got to have a way to bring revenue in. And then you got to have a way to get that revenue to the right people. And then you got to be able to show it to the IRS that what's And you got to make sure they're right. the right people in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, <laughs> that's what I'm passionate about now. And that's what I'm focusing on. But ultimately, it's to give back to an institution that gave me and my family so much over almost 38 years and to support our veteran community, our law enforcement and our first responders and our military family members. And that's what I'm focused on now. And uh, we're going to keep getting after it. We're going to keep getting better and we're going to keep dreaming big and setting those lofty attainable goals, visualizing them and we're going to actualize them and we're going to keep doing good. I think you're going to actualize yourself into a goal that you haven't even set. You already did it once. You, you, there's no way you were thinking, hey, I'm going to be the chairman, joint chiefs of staff, a senior list advisor, because that job didn't exist. You actualized yeah. yourself into a role that they had to create for you. So then yeah. you're, now you're going to actualize yourself into a multinational conglomerate. Okay, got it. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, this is one of the things I'm focused on, you know, being I consider myself an entrepreneur. And as you all know, there's very few senior enlisted out there that are entrepreneurs that have started their own business and everything. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, criticism that comes with that because I'm not a gate guard at, you know, at, you know, Norfolk Naval Base or, or Joint Base Lewis McCord, Washington or something that I'm still striving for excellence in what I'm doing. And, uh, so now I'm not only am I trying to build my own company into something that a lot of enlisted don't do, but I'm also trying to assist other enlisted that are looking to be business owners themselves. And I'm using the, the hashtag corporate enlisted takeover because uh, one thing I've learned about working around people like Dan Daly, the Sergeant Major of the Army, or Russ Smith, the McPawn, and others out there is that when it comes to uh, corporate uh, business and everything, we can compete with the officers of the world. And, uh, and that's not bashing officers or anything, but no. normally, you know, the... Uh, the stigma is that only senior officers, flag or general, can get on, get out, and go do great things in the business world. And I want to show them that, um, you know, guys like me and guys like Dan Daly and and others that we can get out and do it as well. And and so if there's anybody out there, I would say join my network on LinkedIn. And if you're a veteran out there, because uh, I do a lot with Veterans Affairs, and if you're having struggles with your disability compensation claim or you're getting ready to transition, need assistance, reach out to me and I'm more than happy to help. And please join the eTool Nation because uh, we're all about, uh, you know, supporting and helping each other as well. Um, so, gentlemen, thanks again to both of you. Appreciate your service. Please, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to see a soldier and a sailor doing a podcast together. That does my joint heart proud. We're all purple up in here. 
Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, thank you so much. Uh, again, retired SEAC, John Wayne Troxell, thank you so, so much. And as I said before, um, I'm, you know, I look forward to uh, to advocating for all that you are doing. And I, I, I meant what I said of, uh, I think it's awesome that you're, uh, that you're leaning, leaning forward really, really hard to make a difference on behalf of, uh, of all that you've done over the past uh, four plus decades. So thank you. And I know you work with your amazing wife, Sandra, and your, uh, and your son, Brian, and, and uh, a bit of a family effort. So uh, thanks to, uh, to, to both of them um, for supporting you, um, both as you've served. And as we always say on this podcast, we, we all serve and we all continue to serve. Um, So you're doing it. And uh, definitely. So again, subscribe, rate, review, and share. We'll, uh, we'll certainly, uh, we've got a great library of uh, some great conversations, much like our conversation today. And to my, uh, to my friend, my brother, Angel, uh, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, my friend. Absolutely. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And um, we'll see you back here real soon. Have a good evening, everybody. Take care. Bye.